Now, there is a poem titled, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I think maybe some of you are familiar with this poem, but I'd like to read it to you. Most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. (laughs) Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance. Take a nap every afternoon when you go out into the world. Watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Now there is a simple honesty to this poem. It's a good reminder to us that wisdom doesn't always come with age. The accumulation of knowledge doesn't guarantee the application of knowledge. The problem isn't how much do you know. The problem is how much value does what you know add to your life and to the lives of others. Now, this morning as we're looking at our text, if Paul were to rewrite this poem, he would have called it, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Jesus. See, we're in this study in the book of Colossians. I've called it, Who is Jesus? Because there's so much confusion today over the person, the work, the life of Jesus. And this is the same problem that Paul was, uh, faced as he was writing a letter to these people in Colossae. Now remember, these are circumstantial letters. They're addressing a specific problem. Uh, Epaphras, a man that Paul had led to Christ, was the founder of this church. And he brought back information to Paul that certain false teachers had crept into this church and their buzzword was the word knowledge. They believed that they were the superior, the elite. They were better because they had more uh, advanced, special knowledge that goes beyond the gospel. Remember, who were they? They were syncretists, theological soup makers. Let's take a little pinch of Greek uh, thought, some mysticism, a little bit of Judaism, a whole bunch of Christianity, put it all together, and poof, you have something better than Jesus. Only Paul says, that is pure, unadulterated baloney. And so, he says to us, All you need to know, you learned in Jesus. Now, what do you do when someone that you care about is struggling? What's the most important thing you can do for them? You pray. That's what we see here in our text this morning. In this next section of text, Paul describes the content of a prayer that he, Epaphras, Timothy, prayed on a regular basis for these Colossian believers. If you're ever asking yourself the question, if there's someone that God has laid on your heart and you're saying to yourself, how should I be praying for them? Well, I got to tell you, this is a great example to follow here. So if you would, open your Bibles with me. Colossians chapter 1. We're actually on verses 9 to 14. 
the preacher doesn't know how to update the slides. Um, And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can grab a blue Bible in the chair in front of you and turn to page 983, and you'll find the text with us. So how does Paul pray? Well, the first thing that he prays is, Lord, I pray for their knowledge. Look with me at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, if the false teachers were telling these Colossians that they needed a better knowledge, Paul was praying on their behalf that they would realize that they already have a full knowledge of all the things that they needed to know. The word for knowledge that Paul uses here, one commentator says, is the knowledge of what God has done through Christ. So we're not talking about knowledge of his will as in some kind of private plan that God has for your life. We're talking about God's salvific plan. What he accomplished for us in the person of Jesus. In fact, 2 Peter, um, in 2 Peter, I think Peter makes a very similar point. He says, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Remember, if you're looking at the word of God, all of the Bible points to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's not the entry point, so to speak. The gospel is also the D through Z of Christianity. Everything that we need for life and godliness grows out of deeper knowledge and experience of this gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul prays with a certain level of intensity. You notice that he says that he prays uh, without ceasing there. Now that doesn't mean that he was walking around all day praying. It means that he prayed on a habitual manner, in a habitual way, day after day for these people. Uh, This was on Paul's everyday prayer list. I'm sure that you have certain things that you you pray for every day that God lays on your heart and you're, you're seeking his face and asking him to move in a situation. And here we see what a high premium Paul placed on right knowledge. Why? Well, because of this principle. Our Christian walk is fed by good, substantive, biblical knowledge. If you want to grow in Jesus Christ, develop a bigger heart for God, do the right things that God would have you do, you have to come to grow your mind in the gospel. And how do you do that? Well, you do it by reading the Word of God. Now, not all teaching and not all pursuits of the Bible are equally nutritious. We have to understand that. You know, some teaching is junk food to the soul. It really is. And we know that junk food's not very good for us, but I didn't realize just how bad junk food is for you until I interacted with this documentary, Supersize Me, that was released in 2004. 
directed and starring Morgan Spurlock. Now, if you've seen this or if you've interacted with this before, you know that he took a 30-day challenge where uh, from February 1st to March 2nd of 2003 where the only thing that he would eat was McDonald's. Yuck. So he had to eat there three times a day. If they offered him a supersized meal, he had to take it, and he had to try everything on the menu. What happened as a result? Well, this 32-year-old gained 24 pounds. His body mass increased 13%. His cholesterol skyrocketed. He experienced mood swings and all kinds of other personal effects. He said that it took him 14 months to lose the weight that he gained in one month. Anybody hungry for a Big Mac right now? Hmm? <laughs> you can tell them the information, but you can't make them follow it, you know? Well, like McNasty's, some spiritual truth produces Christian flabbiness. And so we have to ask ourselves certain questions of teaching that we're listening to. What is the results that this teaching is producing? Is it causing me to love God more? And am the God that I'm loving, is the God that I'm loving the, the robust, big, uh, theological God that we understand him to be from the Bible, or does it actually diminish the depths and the vastness and the grandeur of this God? Was the plain meaning of the Bible present, or was I simply emotionally stirred? That's a Big Mac. Did the teacher deal with the tough stuff or avoid it like the plague? Junk food is okay once in a while. But if you make it your consistent diet, not good. There's another principle here. You know, some people live on junk food. Others are on a starvation diet. Uh, last year, Barna Research Group released a study with these findings. They saw that fewer than half of all adults can name the four gospel. Many Christians can only name two or three of disciples. And 12% of respondents in one survey believed that Joan of Arc was married to Noah. <laughs> these findings led researchers George Gallup and Jim Castelli to conclude this. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they've become a nation of biblical literates. But why are people starving for the Word of God? Is it because God's Word isn't accessible to us or we don't have any ability to interact with good teachings or things like that? I think actually Solomon identifies the problem in one of his Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. It is a self-induced starvation. So what happens when you go into the starvation mode? Well, I don't know about you, but if I've ever gone for periods where I'm not reading God's word, spiritual decline, spiritual laziness, spiritual decay. Another thing, if there's some that's junk food, if there's a starvation diet, there's also teaching that is just flat-out poisonous. 21 years ago this um, month, on September 6, 1992, Christopher McCandless was discovered by moose hunters just outside of the northern boundary of Denali National Park in Alaska. 
Now, while it is difficult to know the exact cause of death, an excerpt from McCandless's journal leads some to believe that he died because he had misidentified a poisonous plant for a safe plant. What was the problem? He lacked sufficient knowledge of plants. Now, I was a biology major in uh, college, and I've got to tell you that unless you are keenly aware of the differences in plants, it is very easy to misidentify a plant, particularly if they're not in bloom. And this is why we have to have a robust understanding of the gospel. This is like what the false teachers were doing in Colossae. Because some of the people had a cursory understanding of God's word and the truth, it became easy to come in and to say little catchphrases and things here and there that led the people to say, okay, this sounds good, this is safe. But Paul's writing to them and he's saying, no, it's poison. It looks very similar, but if you were to ingest it, it'll kill you spiritually. Now, how do we know if teaching is spiritually poisonous? We'll ask these questions. How does it line up with God's word? Does it interact with the whole counsel of God's word? Does it only take bits and pieces? Does it tell us to disregard God's word in any way? Oh, I, I know that the Bible says that, but we know better today. Paul says, avoid that. It's poisonous. So what is the good stuff? Well, the good stuff is the full counsel of the Scripture studied in the power of the Spirit of God. You see, God's Word has this perfect blend of spiritually nutritious things that we need. It has the sweet elements like the pie and the ice cream where we learn about the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God and it is a delight to interact with those portions of the scriptures. But some of God's counsel is like eating your vegetables. You're saying that we have to eat our Brussels sprouts? Yes, you have to eat your Brussels sprouts, but I only want to eat the pie and the ice cream. No, you have to eat your greens too. Why? Because we need to hear the full counsel of God's word so that we can live a spiritually healthy life. We need to hear about God's wrath, human sinfulness. We need to understand that certain things that God has said are morally wrong, that they are morally wrong. The, the, the unique demand that Jesus has placed on our life for total discipleship where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is how you get filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But what happens when you eat your greens? You get strong bones, strong muscles, and you walk a spiritually fit life. And actually, this is the next part of Paul's prayer. You see, he says that he prays for their knowledge, but now he moves to say, Lord, I pray that their knowledge will produce a worthy walk in their life. Look with me at verse 10. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's stop there. So in the Old Testament, the word walk had to do with conduct. 
An example of this you can see in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5, where Solomon says, get wisdom, get insight. Why? Well, you look then at verses 12 to 13 where he says, when you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. You see, in the Hebrew mind, what you know and how you live are bound together. You can't separate those two things. We know God in his will for this reason. To equip us, to enable us, and to encourage us to walk in holiness. And two results of this life are this. The first is, you see, he talks about walking in a worthy manner. Our walk reflects God's worth to others. That's how I understand that phrase. People should walk away from an interaction with us thinking to themselves, my goodness, the God that they talk about must be marvelous because of how they are. Secondly, our walks bring God's joy. This was the aim of Jesus' life. He talks about pleasing God in John chapter 8, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, meaning that when you walk in God's way, you bring delight to the heart of God. So what does this walk look like? Well, Paul says that there's several aspects of a healthy walk with God. He says that it's productive, it's knowledgeable, it's powerful, and it's thankful. In verse 10, you see that, that productive walk where he talks about bearing fruit in every good work. Meaning, bearing fruit means that you're producing the works of God in your life. Now, how do we do this? John 15, 5, Jesus explains this process. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the secret to the Christian life. Right there. Abiding in Jesus. Now I know some of us hear that abiding terminology and it kind of sounds like spiritual mumbo-jumbo when we hear it. Like, you mean I have to wake up at 4 a.m. and start reading the Bible so that I develop this ethereal glow and I walk outside of the house and I'm just humming, how great is our God all day long? That's not realistic. Abiding is very realistic. Abiding means to make your home in, to take rest in, to, to saturate yourself with, to reflect upon the total forgiveness and the total love that is yours in Christ. So that as you are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God produces this supernatural work where you bear fruit. Now, if you're thinking that you can produce life change by just simply gritting your teeth and saying, I'm not going to hate that person that I want to see take a long walk off a short pier. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient now. You're setting yourself up for failure. Have you ever thought to yourself, why am I still struggling with this particular sin? Maybe I'm not saved because I'm struggling with this particular sin. 
I have. In those times where I bear down and I grip my teeth and I, I try to make the spiritual life happen, I end up doing the opposite of abiding in Jesus. I walk away from Him. I try to do it in my own strength and power. Jesus never said to you, abide in your superior moral character. He said, abide in me. Produce the works that I produce by trusting in the power of the gospel. And if you've trusted in this gospel message of Jesus Christ, you're fully accepted in him. And as you live out the life by relying on him and his power, what happens? Spiritual fruit. Your marriage gets stronger. You want to read God's word more. You grow to be a generous person. You produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So that's the first aspect of this walk, a productive walk. The second is a knowledgeable walk. You notice there that Paul talks about bearing fruit, and then he says increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, increasing in the knowledge of God is not just a pursuit of knowledge for the sake of knowledge. You've met those types of people where learning expands their mind, but it does nothing to enlarge their heart. In fact, you might think to yourself that it's kind of shrunk their heart a little bit. Warren Wiersbe talks about these types. He says, In my pastoral ministry, I have met people who have become intoxicated with studying the deeper truths of the Bible. Usually they have been given a book or introduced to some teacher, and before long they get so smart they become dumb. Those are his words. I happen to agree with them. He continues, The deeper truths they discover only detour them from practical Christian living. Instead of getting a burning heart of devotion for Christ, they get big heads and start creating problems in their homes and churches. All Bible truths are practical, not theoretical. If we're growing in knowledge, we should be growing in grace. And I've got to say this. I would take 150 sinners and work with them over one of these people. I am not kidding you. I have little to no tolerance for this because it's destructive to the body of Christ. They profess to know Jesus better than anyone as they walk along and destroy the church that he loves. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, we know that all possess knowledge. He's talking to this sophisticated, superior type. He says, this knowledge puffs up. It makes us feel superior. But love builds up. It strengthens the church. So that when Paul prays for increased knowledge in God, he is not praying that we become eggheads. He's praying that we would grow more intimate in our understanding of who God is. To do God's will, you must learn about him. You must learn what he is like, how he acts. Why he does what he does. This is why God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things 
I delight. In the Bible, we see a dynamic connection between knowing and doing. One writer outlines this progressive pattern in the Christian life. To receive the gospel is to come to know God. To know God is to do his will. To do his will is to know more and more of God. So it's a productive walk. It's a knowledgeable walk. It's also a powerful walk. Look at verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. What is this power and what is the source? The source of the power is Christ. I've heard that it said, whatever God requires, he provides. So that if God has called you to live a godly life, he also supply the power to you. And if God is the one who is supplying the power, if he's the source, then the magnitude and the supply of that power are limitless. So when Paul prays for all power, he's also praying only for God's best for them. So why do we need this power? Well, because the Christian life is the best sort of life possible, but it is not a call to the easiest sort of life possible. Some people will tell you that about the Christian life, and that's false. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 16, 33. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if Jesus had only said on this earth there will be many trials and sorrows, well, that wouldn't be a very hope-filled message. But how does he follow that up? He follows it up by saying, I have overcome the world. Meaning that all the full supply of God is found in Jesus Christ and is made accessible to us so that the Christian life is not a form of escapism. The Christian life is not some pie-in-the-sky dream where little cupids on harps and clouds are playing ethereal songs to us. It is a life that is powerful because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that if Jesus could live the perfect life, if he could die on the cross and bear the sins of the world, if he could be raised again from the dead, that all things are his and given to him by the Father. Paul says that this power produces work in us. The work of endurance and patience. Endurance is the power to face our circumstances. It's the opposite of complaining, grumbling, and moping around. (laughs) Need to hear that sometimes. Even if we lose everything, even for those people who have lost everything in Harvey, if they have Jesus, they have everything. Why? Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And what of patience? Well, patience is the power to face our enemies. It's a refusal to get even, to stew on our bitter feelings. Augustine said that the one who shows patience, get this, prefers to endure evil so as not to commit it, 
rather than to commit evil so as not to endure it. The point is this. Whatever life throws at you, in Christ, not in you, not in self-help, not in friendship networks, in Christ is the full power and supply that you need to face any and every circumstance so that in Christ there is no addiction that cannot be overcome. In Christ there is no sin that cannot be defeated. In Christ no task that we're called to do that we won't have the strength to follow through with. In Christ no fruit that we're called to bear that he will not produce within us. In Christ no rebellious child that God cannot restore. In Christ no broken marriage that God cannot reconcile. In Christ, there is no disease, whether uh, spiritual or physical, that God cannot heal. All things are in him. Because whatever God requires, he provides. So it's a productive walk, a knowledgeable walk, a powerful walk, and a thankful walk. Look at verses 12 through 14 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that this final and likely most important aspect of a healthy walk is thanksgiving. Henry Nguyen wrote, gratitude in its deepest sense means to live life as a gift, to be received gratefully. But gratitude, as the gospel speaks of it, embraces all of life, the good and the bad, the joyful and the painful, the holy and the not so holy. And I found these words from Helen Keller, who you may know became deaf, blind, at a very early age, Listen to her talk about gratitude. She said, For three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that he vouchsafed me, knowledge of his works. Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness the lamp of faith. Deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song." In fact, she claimed that she had so much that had been given to her that she had no time to think about what she had been denied. Wow. One reason we might not give thanks to God is because maybe we haven't learned the secret of Paul's poem, All I Needed, I Learned in Jesus. And so he's going to give us a little instruction. He's going to share with us three marvelous gifts from God that are ours because of Jesus. The first gift is he has qualified us to share in the inheritance. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever been disqualified from something. I have. I was a swimmer in high school, and it's a very technical kind of sport in some ways. Uh, One time I was disqualified after having uh, practiced greatly to compete in a race before the race even started. You see, in swimming, you have to get up on the block, and when the referee calls you into the start position, you must hold that start position firmly so that if you even wobble just a little bit, he doesn't know if you're making a false start or not. 
And I wobbled. And I was disqualified before the race began, and there was nothing that I could do to change the nature of that situation. You see, in our sinful state, you and I were profoundly disqualified from the kingdom of God. We're not talking about a minor technicality here. We're talking about, apart from uh, Christ, God essentially says that by nature and choice, the kind of person that you are, you are disqualified from coming into my kingdom. You think thoughts, you commit deeds. You're morally opposed to everything that I find wholesome and good. And these types of people are not permitted into my kingdom. What happened in Christ? How did God change the very core or essence of who we are? Well, Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ bore our sins upon the cross as if he were the one to commit them so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, meaning that in him, whatever we lacked before, we no longer lack today. Whatever wrongs that we had committed, they are now covered by the righteous life of Christ. And he has qualified us. So that even when you struggle and you think to yourself, I'm not worthy, there's no reason that God should let me into his kingdom, God responds and he says, in my son, qualified. Absolutely permitted. Forgiven forever. Adequate in Jesus. Receive the kingdom because of his righteous life. What a gift. The second gift is he has delivered us from darkness. You see, the world that we live in, there is ever only two spiritual realms And we are either a part of one or the other. You're either a part of the domain of darkness or you are a part of the kingdom of his beloved son. So those who don't know Jesus are a part of the domain of darkness. And the apostle John says in 1 John 9 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now people in this domain, they might not know, they might not care that they're a part of this dark domain. The word that Paul uses there in verse 13 for domain has to do with authority. It means that Satan's active, powerful influence is controlling those who are in darkness. They are in his power. It doesn't matter how high your IQ is. It doesn't matter how big your uh, stock portfolio is. It doesn't matter how gifted you are at things. Say you're gifted musically or in some other way or how winsome your personality is. If you have not come into the kingdom of light, you are a pawn in the hand of the devil. There is only one hope for all of us. That hope is redemption. It's to be rescued out of the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. And this is what Jesus did. When Jesus died that death on the cross, he disarmed all authorities and powers in this world so that all who believe in him are delivered from Satan's enslaving grip and placed under the kind authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gift. Thirdly, he has forgiven us forever. The third gift 
is forgiveness. Jesus is the only one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So many people feel a sense of guilt and shame in this world because they know they need forgiveness. And they're searching it out in all kinds of different ways. New Year's resolutions, um, good intentions, therapy, good works, cultivating a better self-esteem. But forgiveness is not found in those things. It is only found in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you struggle believing that you could be forgiven, know this. God has given, uh, forgiven you completely, totally. Listen to his own words in Micah 7, 8, and 9. This is the forgiveness of God. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. I mean, how much more a graphic of a display of the love of God do you need than that? God has taken our sins. He has placed them behind his back. He has cast them to the depths of the sea. And let me just say this. There is no depth that man could reach where they could go back and claim those sins that God has cast away in Christ. Even though we have made it seven miles to the depths of the Marianas Trench, there is no piece of equipment that could descend the depths where God has hidden our sins in Christ. God who did not withhold his own son from the pains of the cross. God who called him his beloved son, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's greatest gift. He is the power behind our walk. He is the intent of all spiritual knowledge. As Paul said, all I needed to know, I learned in Jesus. So here's the question. Do you know him? Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?